0: All right. Good morning. Sterling, it is always great to be here. You know, this, this, this room, JC, this, this room has a lot of meaning for us because we, we, Grace Covenant Church, before we were Grace Covenant Church, Sterling, before we were Grace Covenant Church, Korea, before we were Grace Covenant Church, Latino, Grace Covenant Church was just Grace Covenant Church and this was our home. We were actually the first squatters in this room um, when this when this uh, school was built in 2003 I believe is when we moved in 2003 2004. so this room holds a lot of memories we love you love this church and yes I want to be very very aware and careful because this man holds the hostages and um, so uh, it is so great to be here if I if I pass out while I'm preaching this morning it's it won't be the anointing of the Holy Ghost. It would just be the fact that we've just come out of a, a, a three and a half day uh, school of prophecy and a two day conference. Um, it was absolutely tremendous. Uh, we had uh, Dr. R. T. Kendall with us, and that was a quite a unique experience uh, to have some time with him. So. Uh, if you didn't make that, I encourage you to go out online to the Grace Covenant site. I'm sure some of the video will be there. Turning your Bible to the book of Matthew. I'm going to quote a quick passage this morning. Matthew chapter four verse 16, Matthew is quoting the prophet Isaiah. Matthew 4:16, "The people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Let's pray. Lord, empower us this morning to hear well. It's not enough, God, that you would anoint me my tongue, my words, to communicate well. Lord, we need an anointing in this space, in this moment, that we would hear well. We need to be anointed to hear. We need to be anointed, God, to obey. So Holy Spirit, we invite you now into our midst. Amen. Those living... Or dwelling in the region and the shadow of death. We certainly over the past 18 months have been living underneath that shadow. I think we could all agree with that. I mean to be in a moment where we are not at conflict in war and considering casualties of war, all of us have become quite acquainted with all of the numbers both globally and in our nation and in our region. And there's, just, this, there's been this shadow, this, this funk that's just been over us. What else can go wrong in this moment? Tom Rayner, who is a contemporary church growth consultant and expert, has come up with a 30-40-30 that 30% of the church is gone. They're not coming back. The 40% of the uncommitted and the 30% that are committed... They're there, but 30%, a third of the attendees of the American church have checked out. They're gone. Individually, we've all felt, if you wish, the pallor of, of this shadow, of this death. Many of us have felt very, if you wish, pressed, if not compressed and depressed in this moment. We, we really can relate to the words of Paul he wrote to the Corinthian church. He said, man, let me tell you, when we were in Asia, it was rough. He says, we were under great pressure beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself. And I don't believe that this was just hyperbole. This was something that Paul was just wanting to let you know, man, it was bad. And we all know exactly what it feels like to live under that. But I want to say something to you today. Is that the reports of the death of the church are greatly exaggerated. Inasmuch as whatever lies that have been trying to circulate around your life as to your demise, they're greatly exaggerated, to quote the author. I want to show you a quick movie clip this morning I'll set it up just for a moment from 1995 old movie Tom Hanks before he was an old guy from which we get the famous line Houston we have a problem but Apollo 13 and in this particular clip after about everything that could go wrong has gone wrong the flight engineers are discussing whether or not what they have somehow cobbled together might survive entry through the Earth's atmosphere and that these astronauts might be brought home safely. Watch this clip. Flight, they're still showering a bit up there. Do you want to tell them? Is there anything we could do about it? Not now, flight. And they don't need to know, do they? Copy that. Is, this, is my still present in the splashdown? Here? Yeah. We got the uh, parachute situation, the heat shield, the angle of trajectory, and the typhoon. There's just so many variables. I'm a little bit lost. I know what the problems are, Henry. This could be the worst disaster NASA's ever experienced. With all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. Our greatest disaster or our finest hour? Which one is it going to be? And I want to tell you this morning, I believe for your life and I believe for the life of the church that we are in our finest hour. I believe it. And I don't just believe it because I want to believe it. I believe it because God has told me. And not only has God told me, but men and women that I respect, God has also told them the same thing. Our greatest disaster... Or our finest hour. You know it's always easy to highlight the problems, isn't it? I mean, bad news travels real fast, and so it's real easy to see all of the problems that seem to be allied against a safe re-entry. Everything that's going wrong in our society, in our culture, in in our economy, in our politics. It's easy to get into the echo chamber of just beginning to repeat all of the problems. The prophetic got in its own echo chamber and began to repeat what they were hearing from one another rather than reiterating and repeating what God was telling them from the throne. This is why many of the, quote, prophets missed it as it regarded the election from last year. They repeated what they were hearing from one another rather than repeating what God was saying. Wow. But if we're going to determine whether or not it's going to be our greatest disaster or our finest hour, we're going to have to respond correctly. Many times we see the church missing the opportunity. World War II, Japanese surrender. September 2nd, 1945, aboard the Missouri. General Douglas MacArthur made... This statement. Now, I want you to listen to this because this is not a theologian speaking. This is not a pastor speaking. This is a military commander making these statements. Listen to this, and I quote We've had our last chance. If we do not now devise some greater and more equitable system, Armageddon will be at our door. The problem, basically, is theological and involves a spiritual revival and improvement of human character that will synchronize with our matchless advances in science, art, literature, and all material and cultural development of the past 2,000 years. It must be of the Spirit if we are to save the flesh. Now, you would expect that from a pulpiteer. You would have expected that from a Billy Graham. You would have expected that from a church leader. But this is a military commander understanding that the problem is spiritual. For Japan, it wasn't just a military defeat. It wasn't just a governmental upheaval. But they believed that, that, that their emperor was a deity. Their God had fallen over. And MacArthur understood that there was a vacuum created and he made an appeal. He said, I need 2,000 missionaries right now in Japan. As late as 1956, MacArthur was still writing the Southern Baptist Convention and saying, we need missionaries in Japan. And the challenge was not met. And today, less than 1% of Japan is Christian. We go back a few years into the 13th century. Kublai Khan, the leader of the what is now known as Mongolia, of the Mongol Empire, became acquainted with Marco Polo and became fascinated with this new thing called Christianity. And when Marco Polo returned to Italy, he went to the Pope and, and he said, we need to send missionaries to Khan Two missionaries were sent by the Pope, and neither one of them got to him. And as a result, the influences of Buddhism became the dominant belief system because the church never got to him. Go back a few more years. 455, the fall of Rome. And at this time, Rome and Christian, Christianity were sort of connected And the vandals are at the door, and one of the church fathers, Jerome, he pins, all is ruined, all is lost. The world is coming to an end. And he went and hid in a cave. And yet his counterpart in North Africa, Augustine, he wrote a book entitled The City of God, highlighting the cities of the earth and the cities of the kingdom of heaven. And while Jerome was hiding out in a cave, Augustine, even on his deathbed, Even as the vandals were literally at the gates of the city, he was in leadership in that moment. And for you and I, are we going to be like Jerome and go hide in a cave? Or are we going to be leaders in the culture in this moment in the church? So how do we respond? And I want to briefly talk about three things with you today. I want to talk about rightly responding to the conditions in which we find ourselves. I want to talk about confrontation and then lastly, convergence. How many of you remember back in August of 2011, the earthquake that we had here? Now, how many of you, like me, were completely unaware that there was even a fault line that ran anywhere underneath this part of the world. It was the craziest thing. I remember that, that afternoon, and all of a sudden it was like this, and it's like, I have got to get off the caffeine. I mean, it was, it was pretty amazing. I mean, Mineral Virginia, anybody knew that we had a Mineral Virginia? I didn't know, but I know now because that's where it was centered. And things in Washington, D.C. begin to move and shake. Gargoyles begin to jump off of the National Cathedral. They were not supposed to fly, but they took flight on that afternoon. The Washington Monument stayed closed for years based on the damage that was done to it. In just a few seconds. Had no idea. And I remember at that time I spoke a message about seismic change. And in that message, I gave an advice, some advice that I've had to recant now. That once you realize that you're living on a fault line, you need to move off of it if you can. As I revisited that message, I began to see, and God began to show me this time. He said, Son, there's no moving off of the fault line. As a matter of fact, I'm calling you to build on the fault line. Not to try to evade it, avoid it, move off of it whenever you can, but to figure out how are you going to navigate the conditions when everything is rocking and rolling and shaking and quaking around you. How then do we build in the midst of this? How can And you may ask yourself, how can God build on a fault line? Listen to me. God builds on the fault lines in the lives of men and women. Because of that thing called original sin, that even on your best day when you have found your Bible and cracked the cover, you haven't flipped off anybody in traffic or stolen paper clips from the office, even on your most righteous moment. Let me just tell you, God does in the life of a man or a woman never because of, but in spite of. He has to use what he's got, which is flawed humanity and the fault lines in flawed humanity. And yet, he still uses us as those living stones 1 Peter speaks of. An amazing thing. And I began to ask God, God, when is is all this going to stop? When is the shaking going to stop? He said, son, wrong question, but I'll answer it, but you're not going to like it. He said, it's not. The disciples, post-resurrection, pre-ascension Jesus, they're in Bible study together for almost six weeks. Of all of the questions that these knuckleheads could have asked this God-man in that moment... They're still looking at their clocks and their calendars and they're asking, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? Jesus, in the way that only Jesus could do it, both by way of correction and explanation, he says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that my Father has set. However, I'll tell you this, I will send the Holy Ghost to you. That's what you should be asking. Not when is the thing going to happen. And because you and I, many times we get locked in our humanity and we get involved in a moment, whether it's COVID or whether it's an economic crisis or some circumstance around our life, we immediately begin to try to figure out how, what, is the, what is the shortest way out of this? When is this going to stop? God says, wrong question. Wrong question. The question is, how then do we live? Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, Solomon gives us a peek into this. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. And as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Six. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper. This or that, or whether both alike will be good. Now that seems for you and for me a pretty unsatisfactory response. Because we're all looking for the ideal conditions by which to navigate life, do we not? I mean, consider how inconvenient God loves to be in your life. Come on. Well, you know, I'm going to get married once I've gotten out of college and paid off those debts and this and that. And so we we lay out the trajectory of our life and we give God the blueprint and God says, You're so cute. And so then we get married, and we get married in college when you and then and then well we'll have children after we've gotten our career. And then God loves babies. And then the babies start coming sooner than they're supposed to start coming, JC. And then the next thing you know, there's just a whole wave of life that's not in your timetable. It was not on your it was not in your plans. Wow. So how do we respond? We find a lot of biblical metaphors which give us some indication. First of all, farmers sow. I'm from a quasi-farming family. I actually did it one summer long enough to realize, nope. And farmers are always looking for the ideal conditions in the spring. Well, the weather warms up, not too much rain, a little bit of rain, and, but rarely do all the conditions perfectly line up for a farmer to get those seed in the ground. At some point, he has to go out there and realize, if I don't get some seed in the ground, there ain't going to be nothing in October and November. So regardless of whatever else, it's too cold, it's too wet, it's too whatever, we got to get in the field. Steve Merle, who is the Leader, president of our Every Nation group of churches and ministries spoke a message in our last conference out of Mark 4.14. The sower sows the word. It was fascinating to listen to him unpack this very familiar passage because so many times it's exegeted as it's about the condition of the soil in a man or woman's heart. But God had showed him it's not about the condition of the soil. It's about the farmer sows the word. We sow the word irrespective of the condition of the soil. When God came and started sowing himself and his word in your life, your soil was lousy. It was not ready to retain and sustain and maintain and grow that which was going in there. But the farmer sows the word irrespective of conditions. In a leader's meeting at Grace Covenant Church, I think it was in February of last year, I prophesied that there was a plow coming that God was going to drag through the church and through the nations that was going to open up furrows for harvest. This was before COVID became a thing and the, the nation shut down. God showed me also these fault lines. They, these fault lines open up these fissures, these cracks. Well, guess What? God has been doing something on the planet to open up these moments, to open up men's and women's hearts, to open up governments, so that, guess what, the seed can go in. Wow. Farmers sow fishermen fish. Ten years ago also, March, the historic Tohoku earthquake Known as the Great East Japan Earthquake. Most powerful earthquake ever recorded in Japan. Fourth most powerful earthquake in the world. Recorded. Waves 133 feet in height. When it came on shore, it was moving 435 miles per hour. And we see the pictures from that moment. And we see all of this destruction, houses and cars boiling onto the shore, knocking down everything in its path. And we're so fixated on the power and the destruction of this tsunami, this wave caused by this earthquake. God told me a few weeks ago, he said, Son, you know what what else was in all of that water? Fish. I said, whoa. He said there was a tremendous displacement of fish in that wave. But because of the destruction, people couldn't see the fish. Let me ask you a question. Have we gotten so fixated on everything that's wrong, of all of the waves of evil that seem to be coming on the earth, that we can't see that there are also fish in there? Do you realize that what's happened in Afghanistan, what's happened in Somalia, what's happened in many, many places around the world, including at our southern border, do you realize that God is bringing fish to our door? In some of the greatest diasporas in modern history, rather than us getting a passport and getting on a plane and going, God is saying, I'm going to bring them now to you. But are we so tied up because we don't want those people among us? Are we so tied up in our fearful ideologies of, quote, them, that we don't realize that in this wave there are fish that God has called the church to go gather? You ain't got it yet. How you fish in a tsunami is very different than how you fish when conditions are normal. Very different. Eddie likes to fish. My grandsons and my granddaughter, they like to fish. It's amazing. Nobody's catching anything, but they can walk out on a pier, and in seven minutes, there'll be nobody else catching anything. They'll start catching fish. It's an amazing favor. Except on Eddie. Eddie catches disgusting things like eels, ugly fish, things that I don't really want to touch that. I'm just going to give them my rod and reel as a gift as I throw them back. We're going to have to learn to fish differently. And then builders build in these same conditions. Nehemiah, the walls of the city broken down, he's going, he's looking, and he just sees not only broken down walls, but he sees broken hearted people. As this wall has been destroyed, representing not only the defense of that city, but literally its own identity and reputation and honor. And he comes and it's an impossible task. Everything around him. Is, is, is a lie. The Tobias and the Sambalots, it'll never happen. Plotting to take his life. An inopportune time to build. Those of us in Northern Virginia, and albeit yes, I, even around the country right now, trying to buy a house. <laughs> Good luck with that. Because there just aren't enough of them. And yet builders, they don't wait for perfect conditions to go out and build, do they? Can you imagine? Well, you know, it's a little overcast today. Kind of hot out here, Bubba. Yeah, let's put it off until we're all better rested. No. There never would be a house that got finished if that were the case. We're going to have to learn to build in less than ideal conditions, saints. And the way that we build. The way that you build on a fault line is different. The standards of construction in California are very, very different than they are in Illinois because they have to build these buildings in such a way that when, not if, but when they begin to move, they don't crumble. And part of the way that they do that is ensure that these buildings are flexible enough to move. There is a faith required of us, ladies and gentlemen, that, yes, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We are firm in what we believe, but there's got to be a flexibility of how that gets worked out and the outworking in our life. To say God always does it this way doesn't happen. Never say always when it regards the things of God. So because God, just because He's God, he'll come and He'll goof with you. Some years ago, I was in the where was I? Dubai. tallest building in the world at that time known as the Burj Khalifa. And this bad boy is 2,700 feet high, 160 stories. Let me tell you, you get in the top of that thing. I mean, it is just I mean, it's in the clouds. I mean, and you look and you just, you, you get up in the top of it and you just see desert. And all of the wind and the wind storms that come in, if they were to hit that thing, if they had not engineered that structure to do this, the first time those winds hit it, it would have come crumbling to the ground. How flexible are you in the things of God right now? I heard one, one preacher say it this way, God will offend the mind to reveal the heart. He will offend the mind to reveal the heart. I had an opportunity to sit with Dr. Arthur Kendall on a number of occasions over these past few days and just talking about the various moves of God in contemporary history and how so much of the church missed it because it didn't fit not only Their theology, not only their pneumatology, it didn't fit their understanding of how their God would do a thing that they missed it. And this is the unfortunate history of much of the church throughout history because it didn't fit in the narrow paradigm of our understanding and our building as God is wanting to enlarge our tent pegs, as God is wanting to to, to put us in larger and larger situations whereby which we can receive the harvest he's about to pour out, not only to the church but in individual lives. The question is, is there a flexibility? in your life to receive the things of God when they don't come to you the way you think they should oh my farmers sow, fishermen fish builders build and then to finish a biblical metaphor soldiers fight which takes me to my second point the first being conditions the second being confrontation you know I'm amazed at One of the errors that flows through the church today is that somehow we can posture our lives in such a way to avoid conflict. Heard that? If you just have enough faith, confess enough word, declare and decree enough that somehow you can posture and position yourself to somehow live a conflict-free life. Well, not to be unkind, but let me just ask you, how's that working for you? Because we find many Christians find themselves in a faith crisis because they've done everything, quote-unquote, right. And yet the Terminator, known as the devil, won't leave them alone. John 10 says that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Therapeutic. Therapeutic ministry is not going to help him. Pharmaceuticals are not going to help him. You trying to bargain with him is not going to help or change his very nature and character, which is to wreck your life. Jesus said himself, in this world you will have, come on saints, trouble, tribulation. Absolutely. And listen to me. Your finest hour is prerequisite to how willing you are to be entrusted with trouble. Now that's an interesting statement right there. You know, we all are taught to be entrusted with good things. To be entrusted with treasure. To be entrusted with gifting. To be entrusted with ministry. And yet God is looking for men and women. Can I trust you enough to entrust you with trouble? Uh Uh-oh. Pastor Jim, you can go back to where you came from. And it takes but yet a cursory look at Scripture to see that some of the most significant figures in Bible history were willing to be entrusted with trouble. Moses. Moses. Hey, yo. Here, I want you to go to the baddest of the bad, Pharaoh, and I want you to go to him and say, listen, I'm going to wreck your economy because all these people that are propping up your economy through slavery, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to wreck your world. Turn these folk loose. And Moses, I want you to go tell him personally. Oh, my goodness. The baptismal is making noise. All right. Moses spends two chapters trying to talk God out of the assignment. Amazing. Chapters 3 and 4. And there he is. God sends somebody else. And yet Moses stands alone as one of the central figures in all of the Bible. The Mount of Transfiguration. Who shows up there with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. The Law and the Prophet. But he entrusted him with trouble. Elijah entrusted with the trouble of confronting Ahab, an apostate Israel, standing alone against the false government and religious system of the day. Paul, trouble. You realize Revelation will get you in trouble? Oh, I want Revelation. It'll get you in trouble. Paul. That this gospel is not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. Do you know the mess that kept Paul in his entire life? Nobody really trusted him. I mean, here's a guy oppressing and persecuting the church in the other moment, telling folk, hey, this is for the Gentiles too. And then finding himself in conflict with some of the closest relationships around his life as it regarded how that was supposed to work out day to day. To circumcise, not circumcise, eat, don't eat. Trying to figure all this out. Paul entrusted with trouble. And then Jesus. The trouble of sin, yours, mine, and the entire world to secure our inheritance. William Buffett. Berkshire shareholder newsletter quoted Thoreau recently saying, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. See, we look, we get information, we see, we receive revelation. It's a very different thing. The disciples looked out and they saw about 20,000 hungry folk. No McDonald's in sight, no Taco Bell. And they saw a problem. Jesus saw an opportunity. He saw an opportunity, number one, to glorify himself through the miracle of multiplication. But he also was having these men step into that moment of distributing some fish and some loaves in order to see this miracle of multiplication happening. But you see, Jesus was seeing something. All the disciples were doing were looking at the problem. Wow. And we're going to have to confront some things, ladies and gentlemen. And I'll just mention these for the sake of time. You've got to confront fear. Say, oh, I'm not fearful. <laughs> yeah, you are. You know why? Because I am too. It's been a fearful time. You've got all of the, you, you the, uh, uh, the fear mongering. Why? Because bad news sells. Oh, the new variant, it's, it's aerosol. It's 100 times more. Ah! And you know, when COVID is more or less than our rearview mirror, there'll be something else. That's not a curse. There'll be something else that will scare the bejeebers out of us. I mean, back in the 80s, it was AIDS. I remember, I remember pastoring a church. You know, everybody was like, Oh, what are we gonna do? I mean, I mean it was all these protocols of hygiene and what have you, all the medical people in my church freaking out. I mean, we had someone who was HIV positive who was serving in our church, you know, oh what do we need to do? We we should burn them out the stake. I don't think so. You've got to confront fear. You gotta confront self. I got to tell you, I learned a lot about myself during this pandemic that wasn't real pretty. I learned how pathetic I was. Because all I wanted to do was go to a restaurant, touch my nose, and go to a movie and hug somebody. (laughs) And was real cranky about it. You see people now getting on airplanes, a piece of fabric, and willing to be arrested because they won't wear a mask. My wife and I were on a plane recently. and We listened to the person behind us cuss out the stewardess. Can you say stewardess? Flight attendant, I'm sorry. For putting a mask on. It was an incredible diet. I, Everything in me wanted to get unsanctified for a moment. Every, ever, ever wish you could just turn your Christianity card in for just one second and just have a serious moment in the flesh and lean over the seat and say, Would you shut up? You're going to delay our flight because you're going to jail. <laughs> you got to learn to confront self. You know, for many of you, the devil, the devil doesn't need to send anything against your life. He's got you on autopilot. He's got you locked up in this crazy cycle of fault and insecurity. And he's got you in this thing. Of, oh, I, 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 got, I got her right where I need her. Screw tape letter, C.S. Lewis. Nope, we're good on that one. Because they're already self-destructive. They've, they're they're stopping all over their self-destruct button every day. And then you've got to confront the enemy. If you don't, he'll confront you. He'll confront you. That's the reality. And there are two moments that the enemy loves to exploit, both building and birthing. There are two moments that the enemy is faithful to show up for. There's a picture in Revelation 12 of the woman giving birth in the desert. Provision is made for her. Provision is made for that child. But then it says the devil got hot and then he just began to wage war against the woman's offspring. Let me just tell you, we're in a moment of incredible birthing and building in the kingdom of God. And the enemy knows it. Listen to me. He knows it. And lastly, and I'll close with this, is Convergence. April 1906, Los Angeles, California. For the next nine years, what became known as the Azusa Street Revival through William Seymour. laid the groundwork for the arguably the fastest growing catalyst of church history in history. As the Holy Spirit fell in that moment. April the 9th. Nine days later, down the road, there was another event called the Great San Francisco Earthquake. A convergence of the natural and the spiritual. I was at our church in Los Angeles the last few weeks. And I prophesied that I believe that God's getting ready to send a new wave. That the very place that in the United States became sort of the centerpiece, the, the spot... That God began to move through. I believe it's going to return there in power. It's going to happen. And we see a convergence of opposition and opportunity. The natural and the spiritual convergence. This is why in Ephesians 5 it says, Wake up, sleeper. Wake up. Rise from the dead. Hear this this morning as a prophetic exhortation. Wake up, rise, and Christ will do what? Shine upon you. Be very careful then. Paul now gets real practical how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Oh God, I can't do anything because the days are evil. No, 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 no. That's the very catalyst for you to be at your very best. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Could it be, whether it's your life, personally, the church, the nation, the nations, could it be that our seemingly greatest disaster and darkest hour is about to become our greatest? Could it be that they're one in the same? Lazarus, four days of hours, dead and decomposing, so that Jesus could step up and say, Come out, come forth. Wow, the darkest hour for Lazarus, Mary, Martha, the friends, everybody gathered was about to become their greatest hour as they were about to witness the resurrection power of God and convergence listen saints the cross is the ultimate place of that convergence the cross the place of convergence of hostility and horror prerequisite death, subsequent life, where unrestrained evil met with unparalleled holiness and extended mercy and grace. It's a place of divine convergence. And I believe for many of us, we find ourselves in that very moment. Your darkest hour is but prerequisite to your greatest. And I'm here to declare to you this morning, and not out of my own imagination, but I'm here to declare to you that I believe that we are in and coming into our finest hour. Pray with me. Lord, you say in Hebrews that what can be shaken will be shaken, but that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be. Lord, we thank you. Lord, many times it's hard for us to thank you for hardship, to thank you for trouble. But God, we want to acknowledge that these momentary afflictions, these momentary hardships, God, it's not that the enemy slipped one in past you, but God, they were of your design and ordination that you might make yourself known to us families, our neighbors, our campuses, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, the nation and the nations that your glory would be made known. Lord, let us hear well, but God let us respond better by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church.